turn your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall. When a coach's contract is up for renewal and the season record stands at two wins and ten losses, the fans begin to whisper, the handwriting's on the wall. Most likely, the imagery for this idiom comes from Daniel 5, where a hand, likely the hand of God, writes on the wall. Now, the book of Daniel does not deal with every Babylonian king. We had Nebuchadnezzar last week in chapter 4, and we have Belshazzar. Now, not Belteshazzar, that's Daniel, but Belshazzar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson on the maternal side, takes center stage today. Verses 1 through 4, we have Belshazzar's banquet. Look at me at verses 1 through 4. Belshazzar, the king, held a, a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, nor that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. According to ancient historians outside of the Bible, this banquet occurred in October of 539 B.C. But just two days prior to this banquet, the Persians had conquered Opus, which is modern Baghdad, which is located just 50 miles north of Babylon. King Belshazzar had to know the Persians were coming. In fact, according to the Nabonidus Chronicles, his father, Nabonidus, he was co-king. Belshazzar was co-king with his father, Nabonidus, that Nabonidus, his father, just two days prior, had had to flee Opus in order to survive. In the midst of this coming Persian army, with his own father having fled, Belshazzar exhibits his bravado by drinking himself under the table in the gaze of thousands. Now, with the Persian army on the prowl, what could possibly be the meaning of this riotous banquet. Why would Belshazzar throw a big banquet on the perilous night when the Persians were coming, on the very eve of his fall? Well, there are a lot of theories out there. One is perhaps Belshazzar thought he still might beat the Persians. So he was hopeful it was a sign of a, a pet rally before the football game and you're the underdog. And maybe it was a, a celebration of encouragement to give courage to the armies and the leaders. Others have said that because Nabonidus, his father had fled the Persians, 
Obashalzar was throwing a feast to declare himself the one and only king. Only he had a crown now that his father had fled in defeat of the Persians. The fact that a thousand noblemen showed up to this particular party may be evidence of such a royal coronation of the sole king, Belshazzar. Maybe it was all about him. Well, probably the best theory, however, comes from ancient historian Xenophon. He said the Babylonians, in fact, were just observing a customary festival that happens at this time of year. And the Persians were smart. It seems plausible because the Persians knew if they came the next day, they would all have been in a drunken stupor. They'd be at a weak moment during the festival. In fact, Xenophon, the ancient historian, says during this festival, the citizens of Babylon drink and make merry the whole night long. Show up in the morning after they're drinking and you will take the city. Well, I want you to understand the importance here. Belshazzar crossed the line when he called for the gold and silver goblets to be brought out and used for his banquet. These were the gold and silver goblets that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. They were sacred. In fact, these goblets were the only last sign of Israel's religion, the only tangible objects that remained of all that was holy to ancient Israel. The prophet Isaiah had already made it clear when he wrote in Isaiah 52, depart, depart, go out of here, touch nothing unclean, go out in the midst of her, purify yourselves, those who carry the vessels of the Lord. Isaiah had said that these were special goblets and only holy men prepared that were clean could carry them. Well, Belshazzar does what his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar would not have done on his worst day, profane Israel's religion by drinking out of those holy vessels. Belshazzar's heart by taking the goblets was a factory of rebellion against the God of Israel. Now the word father here in verse 2 is actually a word for ancestor and so maybe forefather. It's his grandfather, not his father. His forefather could be indicated by the same word. Well, it's not an act of ignorance. Belshazzar knows where these goblets came from. And he knows how holy they are to Israel. And yet he uses them. The proverbial sage had said long before, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. Going beyond sacrilege, Belshazzar toasted, notice, the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. It wasn't just bad enough that he used Israel's holy goblets, the only sign they had of their religion. He used them to toast to idols made by the hands of men. On the eve of his destruction... Belshazzar specifically chooses to challenge and blaspheme the God of Israel rather than the other countless foreign deities that, he, that could have been defamed. Now earlier, Daniel, and it's in Daniel chapter 8, but earlier Daniel in the timeline, Daniel had prophesied Babylon's fall to the Persians. 
In fact, 150 years before, Isaiah had actually named Cyrus the Persian king who's going to defeat the city. Was Belshazzar aware of the prophecies of Isaiah and the prophecies of Daniel? And was he challenging the God who had predicted his defeat? Was it a complete act of arrogance to take God's goblets and use them as he toasted the gods made with wood and stone? Verses 5 and 6, you have the handwriting on the wall, which Cliff read for us. Modern excavation has discovered this palace complex that Babylon had. In fact, there's a little part of the wall that remains, and it's covered in white gypsum, which shows that any handwriting on the wall would show up very well on this gypsum white wall discovered, which is clearly likely this throne room where Belshazzar is. Now, we're not told explicitly the source of the hand or the fingers it appears, but we can be quite sure that they are no less than a symbol of the presence of God, the God of the goblets that he's defamed. You remember in Deuteronomy 9, we were told that God's finger writes the Ten Commandments. You remember after the plagues, the Egyptian magicians, after the acts of the plagues, remarked, this is the finger of God. Or the psalmist declares the heavens themselves are the work of God's fingers. This is God's hand, and God's finger is writing on the wall. Verse 6, what was once a very confident king, he's shaking in his boots. The appearance of this hand, he's nervous. Tells us in verse 6, his face grew white. His mind went mad, his knees started knocking, and his bodily functions were beyond his control. The nice way of saying it was his hip joints went slack. He is really, really nervous. Verses 7 and 9, we have the say, say less sages. Look at verse 7. The king called aloud to bring the conjurers of the Chaldeans and the diviners, and the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and the nobles were Perplexed. Now, we've already learned in this book, as we've preached through it, that these know-nothing Chaldean conjurers aren't really good for anything. In chapter 2, they can't tell the king his dream, nor can they interpret the dream. In chapter 4 last week, they cannot interpret the dream. Well, they really serve for one purpose only, and that is their failures bring forth the wisdom of the real wise one, Daniel. They serve the contrast with the one that God has given the ability to interpret dreams and know all meanings. Now notice the gifts that one will get. You'll get a purple garment. You'll get a necklace of gold. You'll get a position of power third in the land. If you can tell me what this handwriting on the wall means. 
Now, having a garment of purple won't help a whole lot if you're in a city that's about to be under siege. 10 and 12, enter the queen. 10 and 12. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom a spirit of the holy gods and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, wisdom, like wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. Now the queen walks in without invitation. And we're doing Esther on Wednesday nights, and we'll see in Esther's study too, the queen isn't allowed to just walk in to the king's chambers without invitation. To do so is to risk her life. This isn't just another one of his wives. Verse 2, we've already been told the wives are there. This is the queen mother. This is most likely the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, which would be his grandmother. And you don't tell your grandmother no. Your grandmother walks right in and has a conversation with him. Natacris is her name. In fact, ancient historians celebrated her wisdom. And she had a memory, his grandmother, that didn't span days. It spanned decades all the way back to Daniel and Daniel's wisdom. By now, Daniel's old. He's a forgotten figure in Babylon. But Granny remembered, the Queen Mother remembered, during your grandfather's reign, there was one who had the spirit of the gods and he had all wisdom and all knowledge and all interpretation. Do not grow pale. Call out this one and he will tell you. Well, in verses 13 through 6, we have Belshazzar's offer that he makes to Daniel. Daniel was brought before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you the Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Even in this state of shock, he has not lost his arrogance. He reminds Daniel that you're nothing but a, a captive of the Chaldeans. You're an exile, you're an exile from Judah. The mere mention of Daniel's exilic existence in Babylon placed Daniel in an adv adversarial relationship to the king before him. You're nothing but one of my captives, one of my prisoners, he's saying to Daniel. I want you to notice the masterful stroke of the artist as he writes, just like the gold goblets and the silver goblets had come out of Jerusalem, Daniel has come out of Judah. Daniel stands with the goblets as holy. And then the king says something to him. If you are able to challenge Daniel in the middle of this narrative, if you are able, there was nothing that Daniel could not do given the gift that God had given him. To say to Daniel, if you can, was to heighten the tension of the text. Verse 17, Daniel declined. 
Now, Daniel had dealt with megalomaniacal monarchs before, but this time his tone is terser. When he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, even when he had bad news, he always had a a tone of respect for Nebuchadnezzar, but not for Belshazzar. Daniel's older, and he's not as patient as he used to be with these pagan kings, especially this second-rate monarch. So Daniel says, you keep your gifts. I'm not interested. It was a misconception for Belshazzar, that God's pronouncements could be paid for with positions of power and purple garments and pendants of gold that had to be rejected. You can't pay off Daniel. He is in no obligation to appease this king. Well, verses 18 through 24, we remember Nebuchadnezzar. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty grandeur and glory and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all peoples, nations, and men of every language, verse 19, feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. And whoever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud, he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that, like the heart of the beast. The overarching difference between Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson Belshazzar is that Nebuchadnezzar was willing to repent. In fact, we learn here that When he became beast-like, he lived amongst the wild donkeys in addition to what we learned in in chapter 4. The reality in life is this. There are two ways to learn. You can let the losses of others and learn and, and let them pay your tuition. Or you can be arrogant and demand that you live your life your way and not look at the faults and failures of others and you pay your own tuition with your own hardship in your own life. Going through life, I've tried to let others pay the tuition and me do the learning. It's a good way to live life. But not Belshazzar. He had known that his grandfather had been arrogant and that God had driven him out like a wild donkey. He'd known that God had brought down his power. He knew, and yet he did not learn from the mistakes and mishaps of his grandfather. He refused repentance. Proverbs 22 says, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself. You see a lesson learned, you go the other way. Proverbs 18 says, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs 1.8 says, hear my son your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching." But he refused to learn from the failures of his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar. And there he stood in pride using the golden goblets of God in a profane way to toast the idols made with his own hands. Verses 25 through 29, we have Daniel's interpretation. Now, I don't think that it was that the Chaldean counselors couldn't read the words. They're simple words. They're in noun form. They have to do with numbers or money. It wasn't that they couldn't read the words. Many, many tekel you farsen. 
It was that they could not interpret or get meaning out of them. And Daniel is given the insight of God to solve the puzzle. He changes them to verbals, the nouns, and it means this, numbered, weighed in God's balance, and divided. Numbered, Belshazzar, your days are numbered. Many, many, it's said twice. Tekel, you are weighed in the balance of God and you are found coming up short and thus your, king will be, your kingdom will be divided amongst the Persians and the Medes. In fact, the word Perez, Eupharsin is plural, Perez is singular. It, Daniel changes it during the interpretation to the singular. This Perez, you know, in Hebrew and Aramaic, there are no vowels, there are only consonants. And these consonants for Perez are the same consonants that would be used for the name Persia. He solved the puzzle. Many, many tekel Perez. Daniel changes it. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. And God will divide your kingdom. Congregation, the reality this morning is we've all been found wanting. We've all been weighed in God's balance. There's only one reason. Ultimately, there's only one reason that one refuses to proclaim the Lordship of Christ. And that's arrogance and pride. That we, like Belshazzar, would say if we reject Christ Jesus, that we know a better way, that we don't need God's plan of salvation, we'll stand on our own two feet. All of us have been measured in God's balances, and we all come up short. We all need a Savior. And you will choose with Belshazzar to stand in ignorance, ignorance and reject the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, or you will fall at his feet and call him Lord. Will you be repentant like Nebuchadnezzar or will you be arrogant like the grandson? The Old Testament prophets had clearly predicted Babylon's fall. Isaiah had said it. Jeremiah had said it. Daniel contributed specifically to focus on Belshazzar's demise. According to the Nabonidus Chronicle, an extra-biblical source, this happened on the 16th of the month of Tishri, which would be October the 12th, 539 B.C. This banquet, therefore, is on October the 11th, the night before. In fact, it was an easy capture of the city. Xenophon, an ancient historian, says they took the Euphrates River. The walls of Babylon were so, so strong and tall. They moved the river a different direction, so the water went low in the pipes, and they waded through the water. The Persian army waded through the water, and in fact, inside, the citizens welcomed them without a battle. The Cyrus Cylinder says no battle took place. The captives that had been gathered by Babylon were hoping that Cyrus would allow them to go back to their home countries, that there was no bloodshed, there was no battle. They had to give up because they were in the drunken stupor after the banquet, and they actually didn't like Belshazzar either. And so he was welcomed as a conqueror of the city. Many, many tackle. Eupharsin. Belshazzar, you have profaned that which is holy. And using God's golden goblets to toast your idols. 
Your days are numbered. They were numbered. It was one left, right? Your days were numbered. You've been weighed in the balance and you come up short and therefore I will divide and destroy your kingdom. Where are you this morning? Do you have a heart of pride and arrogance like Belshazzar that you would reject God's word? Belshazzar didn't believe Israel's prophets which said he would fall. Isaiah had said it 150 years before, even giving the name of the Persian king who would come in, Cyrus. But he didn't believe. Pastor, how can I know that the gospel is the way? You are told in God's word, these same prophets said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you don't believe the prophets, he came in the flesh, born in Bethlehem. He was died, he was crucified, and witnesses saw he was resurrected from the dead on the third day. God has given you his word. For you too, the handwriting is on the wall. Many, many tackle you farsa. I know how Belshazzar responded. He stiffened his neck. He broadened his shoulders. He refused to repent. What I don't know is how we respond. To a God who tells us we've not kept his commandments, we've fallen short of his glory. Will we be arrogant too? Will we do what we're going to do one day anyway? For every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God weighed Belshazzar. God weighs me, and God weighs you too. Will we repent? Let us pray. Well, God, this morning we're all the arrogant king in the story. We've all said at some point in our life, we know a way that's better than God's way. We've all taken that which is holy and profaned it. Maybe there's some here this morning watching by live stream or by live television and it would be her morning or his morning to say, I see the handwriting on the wall in my own life today and I will declare Jesus is Lord. I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I, I know I need a church family. Walk this journey as a pilgrim to follow the rabbi called Jesus. Well, God, maybe there's some this morning who need to say that simple prayer in his life. God, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I give my life over to the Christ. I repent of my sins and I'll live life your way amongst your people. Maybe there are others here this morning who need to come and be a part of this fellowship, this church, to do this Jesus journey hand in hand and side by side. In the name of our crucified and resurrected Lord, we pray. Amen.